Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, today on the show, we're talking about the lottery. We're talking about the 2024 election. We're talking about guns. We're talking about the legislature. We got a lot coming up on this show. Yes, correct. (laughs) We are now joined by the one and only Howard Stutz. Hello, Howard. How's it going? Thank God I'm the one and only. (laughs) And so we are talking about a a bill that we've actually mentioned on the podcast before. We're going to get a little more in depth here, where there is a push to bring a lottery to Nevada, something that is outlawed right now, actually. Well, yeah, it's a constitutional change that has to be made. And AJR5 was introduced by Assemblyman Miller out of North Las Vegas. And it's a push to create a state lottery, which has failed, I think, dozens of times, two dozen times maybe that it's failed to try to get a lottery, you know, pushed through in the legislature because you need to go through the legislature twice, then it will go up in front of the voters. So on this timeline, you're looking at this legislative session, 2025, and then 2026, it would go in front of the voters. And it's just basically because we know down here in Southern Nevada, when there's a big Super Lotto out of California. We line up at the lottery stores in, in Prim just across the border. And the same thing happens up in Reno at Verdi, the Gold Gold Ranch Casino up there. They have a lottery store just over the border in California that they operate. And so that's, that's really what it is to try to recapture those dollars that are going to California's lottery, come back here in Nevada. So how did the uh, casinos feel about this and who's kind of behind, you know, the push for it? Miller made his presentation on this week, and he had one proponent. The big proponent was the culinary union. They want the proceeds of of any state lottery to go toward mental health treatment for both youth and mental health awareness. So that was their big push and why they're backing Miller and this lottery question. The major gaming companies were all opposed, and for obvious reasons, they don't want the competition from the state lottery. But there was a lot that's been pointed out, the fact that casinos companies have all gone into different states around the U.S. where lotteries already exist. Mississippi just legalized their lottery in 2018 and and it launched in 2019. And ironically, MGM, all the casino companies there in Mississippi did not oppose the Mississippi lottery. And in a lot of these states, casinos are lottery retailers. There's lottery kiosks to buy tickets, you can buy them at gift shops. So they work hand in hand together. In, in many states, but Nevada, maybe it's just a little too traditional, not going to, you know, it's always, the casinos have always fought against the lottery. Years ago, a CEO of one of the gaming companies once told me a dollar for buying a lottery ticket is a dollar that can go into one of their slot machines. So something I'm curious about, Howard, is that the Culinary Union in backing this has made a really big push for childhood mental health, basically saying that this money can be used for good because it's a state-run lottery, so the state can decide how to spend the money. But what I'm curious about is how does that argument actually play when any real lottery wouldn't exist until 2027 at the earliest? There's also, there was the point being that there's no mention of mental health or any of that in the in the actual resolution that we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, that is the, the question. You know, that's this is all gonna have to be set up down the road. Who regulates it? Are you gonna dump this on the gaming control board to regulate? I mean, you're gonna need to expand that. Do we just set up a separate lottery commission to regulate it? It's gotta be regulated by the state. The other big question is, and what was pointed out to me by some of these casino operators was a state lottery is just a Nevada lottery that's not going to make a lot of money. That's not going to be, that's not going to do a lot. Nevada has to join the multi-state lottery system 
to be part of the Powerball, to be part of the mega millionaires. Those are the big $2 billion Powerball jackpot that we saw last year. So Nevada would have to join that system to be part of the, you know, to get the push on the lottery. So I guess I'm also curious, is this being used as a bargaining chip by the culinary union? Because there's some interesting stuff actually coming up for the culinary union, right? The big factor for all the casino industry in Las Vegas is the culinary contracts expire at the end of May. And those cover about 60,000 non-gaming workers at the different hotel casinos on the Strip and in downtown. D. Taylor, who's the head of Unite HCRE, which is the culinary's national parent union, he spoke out in favor of the lottery, but he also kind of tipped his hand at what the union's argument is going to be when they come up for these contracts. He's talking about the, the record gaming revenues and the profits from those gaming revenues, how the casinos are spending them. And then he questioned about MGM doing $4.7 billion in stock buyback. So there are a lot that, that seemed to be an area when he talked about the state lottery and support, he was just criticizing casinos and kind of talking about the contracts that are going to come up here in the next in the next month or so. So that's kind of where this is all kind of blending together at some point. So I think it's I think I am in my guess and just and not being up there like you guys are and just kind of watching from down here and, and following the hearings. I think it's 50-50 it gets through, but we'll see what happens down the road. All right. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining us and chatting about this today. And I'm sure we will be hearing a lot more about it as we get closer to the uh, the vote for this. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Well, Jacob and I are here with our D.C. reporter, Gabby Birenbaum. Gabby, hello. How is the weather in D.C. this fine April morning? Hi, it just got really hot like in the last week. I don't feel like we had a spring. I feel like it's just summer immediately, which kind of sucks, but it is nice to like wear shorts. We are still in the endless winter that is uh, northern Nevada. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what shorts weather's like. Yeah, not not envious. <laughs> Jacob's pining for a for a warm day. Yeah, listeners, I am losing it. <laughs> um, and so we are here to talk about someone else who is in D.C. and also sometimes in Nevada, Senator Jackie Rosen, who is seeking re-election for her seat in the Senate. Gabby, you've been reporting on this. Yeah. So this is typically now that we're into sort of the second quarter of the fundraising cycle. I think this is typically when a lot of incumbents will announce. It's easy for incumbents to get ahead that way when there's no you know major challengers. They can start to define themselves before an opponent can define them negatively. They can lean on their fundraising advantage. They can start to put things out. So she is certainly not the only incumbent Senate Democrat to have announced recently. And I'm sure there'll be more to come. So something I'm curious about is because when you're announcing this early, so much of it is a money thing, right? How much money you're going to raise and then how you're going to spend that money. And I guess just to contextualize, where is Rosen in the money landscape for 2024? Rosen is in a great starting spot. Whatever her Republican opponent will end up with, she's kind of starting on third base in terms of fundraising. She already has over $4 million in the bank, which is a Nevada record for this point in the cycle. She you know, has the full might of the Democratic fundraising machine behind her, which, as we've seen in the last several election cycles in Nevada and around the country, has been really, really powerful in funneling small dollar donations towards candidates. We'll see what her second quarter numbers look like. But so far, she's off to an even stronger start than Senator Cortez Masta who just came off a race in which Nevada saw record spending and she was able to massively outspend her opponent. I guess the other big question right now is who is Rosen actually going to be running against? Do we do we have any sort of insight on who her Republican opponent will be? I'm sure she'd love to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think all the typical names that we've seen, especially in the last cycle, are, you know, always potentials. Sam Brown, who ran in the Senate 
primary and lost to Adam Laxalt, I think it'd be a safe bet that he'll try again. Laxalt, you know, who has run for, at this point, governor and Senate, could always try again. April Becker, who ran against Susie Lee in the House and lost, she might give it a try. You know, there's there's always the potential for an outsider. I've heard some like rumblings that maybe Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars could throw his hat in the ring. You never know. But I don't think anybody right now has the potential to clear the field if they announced. So I would imagine it'd be a pretty open primary and it, for the Republicans. Now, the one person she's probably not going to be running against is House Representative Mark Amaday, who people were considering maybe might move from the House to the Senate. But he has said that he's not going to run, correct? Yep. He told me he's not running. You know, nothing's ever official until we see paperwork filed or anything like that. But he has one of the most comfortable seats, certainly the most comfortable Republican seat in the state one of the most comfortable ones in the House. He's accrued enough seniority to be what's called a cardinal on the House Appropriations Committee, which is a really powerful position where he gets to lead a subcommittee that you know does the congressional budget, the federal budget. So he tells me he's staying put, and I can see why he would do that. So 2024 is obviously going to be different from 2022 because people may know there's a presidential election that's supposed to happen. So what's the, any anticipation we have of how that might affect Nevada's Senate race? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When you're in a presidential year, the number one thing you're going to see is higher turnout. So that could benefit either party, likely depending on how the top of the ticket will either bolster or drag down the Senate candidates. So it might depend. Biden's approval rating in Nevada has not been great. It's not been great around the country. But if he can raise that before the election, that could be a good sign for Rosen. If not, he could potentially be a drain on her, although not necessarily, not exclusively. We've certainly seen Senate candidates outperform, you know, their presidential nominee in various states, you know, someone like John Tester in Montana. And then the same thing on the Republican side. If the candidate is Trump, for example, who has never won in Nevada, that could be a potential drag on a Republican candidate. Although if it's another candidate with lower name recognition who does not drive as much turnout, we might not see as many Republican voters out to begin with who could support a Republican candidate. Well, something I'm curious about on the issues is, you know, we just had some special elections in the country, right, last week, and we saw progressives and Democrats win, and they won, especially in Wisconsin, their, their Supreme Court race on the issue of abortion, right? And certainly there was a lot of talk about how abortion played into Nevada's race, even though it sort of wasn't, quote unquote, on the ballot in Nevada in 2022. But certainly Cortez Masto campaigned heavily on being pro-choice, pro-abortion access. So... Is everything the same? Are, are we looking at the same kinds of issues going into 24? I think it depends. I mean, I think a lot of the analysis this week after we saw those elections in the Midwest is that Republicans have to have a more coherent message on abortion and that, you know, voters are not supporting and engaging with these six week bans, especially in a state like Nevada, right, where abortion is protected. I think it could play out a number of ways. I think as long as there's no federal right to an abortion, us are certainly going to continue to hammer it. And I think we've already seen, even though it's really early into the Rosen campaign, that was one of only a few issues that she mentioned in her pretty short launch video. So that's something she's definitely going to lean into. She already has an endorsement from Emily's List, which is a pro-choice group. So I'm sure she'll want to lean into that. I think it could also, you know, if some of Nevada's neighbors like Utah, for example, if they tried to push any type of bill to restrict travel for abortion, I'm sure Rosen could kind of tout Nevada as a haven for people to get safe abortions. And so, yeah, I think until there's some sort of federal clarity on abortion, this is going to continue. And, you know, as long as Democrats continue to benefit from it, it's going to continue 
to play out. Will it be as potent as it was in 2022? I don't know. Maybe not because, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned over the summer and the election was in November. But I think Rosen will certainly continue to talk about it. All right, Gabby, well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I'm sure we will be talking about it a lot more as we ever approach 2024. I can't believe we're already approaching another presidential election soon. Have a great, nice summer day in D.C., and we appreciate you chatting with us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, sure, we'll be talking about Jackie Rosen many, many more times. Alrighty, well, we have made it to that part of the podcast where Jacob and I are joined by the rest of the legislative team to talk about everything that's going on in the legislature. Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller, thank you so much for joining Jacob and I. Good to be here, Joey. Thanks for having us, Joey. Yeah. And so the big thing last week was guns. Lots of gun hearings about various gun bills. Sean, you you and Tabitha were covering that together. Can you kind of start by just explaining, you know, what the bills were that were heard? Yeah, so we actually got a pretty rare joint hearing of the Senate and Assembly Judiciary Committees to hear these major gun bills. Two of them come from Assemblywoman Sandra Hadegi, who is a survivor of the one October shooting in Las Vegas. One of those bills, Assembly Bill 355, would raise the legal age for purchasing or possessing semi-automatic shotguns and rifles from 18 to 21 years old. That's the same age as the legal age to buy a handgun in the state already. Hadegi's other big bill, AB 354, would criminalize anyone who brings a firearm within 100 yards of an election site. So basically trying to ensure that no one outside of law enforcement has a gun at a polling location or by a ballot drop box. So one of those bills also has to do with the state's ghost gun laws, right? I mean, when we talk about ghost guns, right, these are sort of unregistered, unserial numbered, partial gun parts and difficult or impossible to trace for law enforcement. So I guess, why are we talking about this again if the legislature already took care of this in 2021? Right. So last session, they tried to ban ghost guns, but basically Polymer 80, who is based in Dayton, Nevada, and is one of the nation's largest manufacturers of ghost guns, sued to basically uh, abolish that law, saying this is unfairly targeting us. And also that there are these really vague, unclear definitions of what constitutes ghost guns, what's an unfinished frame or receiver, what has to have a serial number on it, according to federal regulations. And so basically, this bill is just trying to clean that up and ensure that the prohibition on ghost guns can actually take effect by making those definitions clearer. So the hearings were pretty contentious, most of them, right? I think that there was kind of a lot of back and forth. What was the takeaway after listening and watching these hearings? Well, I think that, you know, when we look at this, the bills faced really strong opposition from like the National Rifle Association and the Republican Party as well. And the big message of those groups were that these would infringe on Second Amendment rights by limiting access to guns. The opposite end of it, however, you know, supporters saying, hey, look, we have had an enormous increase in gun violence in recent years. This legislation is like necessary for protecting our citizens. And one of the things that I found interesting is that, and Sean talked about a little bit, but reducing who can have access to some of these like semi-automatic weapons and saying that under 21, we already have laws in statute that limit, you know, people younger than 21 having access to guns. So I think that's that was a big part of the discussion. There's a lot of like, obviously, very strong feelings about this. And and those definitely came out during what was a very, very, very long hearing. 
And, and a lot of this testimony in support of these these gun violence prevention bills were tied to statistics about children being killed in gun violence, also hate crimes perpetrated with gun violence. That was the third bill that we haven't touched on yet. Senate Bill 171, sponsored by Senator Dallas Harris, would prohibit a person from owning or, or purchasing a firearm if they have been convicted in the last 10 years of committing or attempting to commit a hate crime. So we've got a Democrat-led legislature, both in the Senate and the Assembly. Of course, they're going to bring up gun control as a topic of conversation. But of course, the next step is the governor's office. So even if these bills advance through this session, what are the odds that Lombardo even gives any of these bills the time of day? Well, and I think that's what we need to watch for, because, you know, on the campaign trail, Lombardo was very staunch that I will protect your Second Amendment rights. And he hasn't commented directly on how he feels about these pieces of legislation. You know, we, we've asked him and said, you know, where do you stand on this? And the kind of standard response is we will review these bills when they come across my desk. But I think that these will face an uphill battle in the governor's office. And it's very, very strong likelihood that they don't pass. But again, we don't know for sure. And just to put a bow on the, this gun discussion before we move on to other bills, what was the testifying like from the public? What was the testimony like? Was there a, a vast majority of people coming out for one side or the other? Where was one bill more notable? I mean, I think that when you listen to the testimony, it was, I mean, a very, very long hearing with strong sentiments on both sides. Like, I wouldn't say that there was like a strong opposition or a strong support. It was just both both sides had a lot of public commenters. They took up the entire time that they could. And and I think there were more people that wanted to testify about the meeting. You know, you have to end it at some point in time. All right. Well, from there, we will move on as well to talk about kind of everything else that you guys are paying attention to. Jacob, I know you are paying attention to a bill on trains. Isn't that right? Yes, Joey. I am plugged in on the trains and I am now a train guy. So last week, there was a hearing on AB 456, which is this bill that would essentially try and avoid a East Palestine style derailment for anyone who doesn't remember. That is the train that derailed in Ohio, spilled a bunch of dangerous chemicals, and now it's becoming an ongoing economic and environmental disaster over there. And here, what the issue is, is the length of trains, because Nevada obviously has lots of mountains. And and that makes running trains through here. So it's some of the most difficult terrains trains have to run through in the entire country. And basically what a lot of the train unions want is this bill, which would limit it to 7,500 feet or about 1.4 miles. That's still a very long train. But right now, trains are averaging over three miles long. The trains that are running through Nevada are over 60 million pounds in weight. And so a lot of the train workers also say that these trains are more prone to derail. They're more prone to break. They're harder to control. And, you know, when one of them derails, one of the workers sort of evocatively described the cars cracking like eggs because that's the kind of forces that are at play on these trains. Now, the problem is that the train companies obviously say, well, there's a reason why the trains are this long, right? This is a commerce issue. All this stuff needs to go places. And this is stuff we're not putting on trucks. No one wants to put dangerous chemicals on trucks and put those on roadways. So they need to go on trains. So problem number one. Problem number two is that the train companies like Union Pacific argue this actually violates the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And they're basically setting up a legal battle to saying that, look, the Supreme Court has ruled on this in the 40s. This is not constitutional. Don't even try this. So we'll see where this goes. Why not a bunch of little trains, Jacob? <laughs> Why not many, many smaller trains? Well, that's the purpose of the bill, right? To take one big train and say, let's just do multiple small trains. 
fun fact, what they said in the hearing is that like when trains cross state lines, they like break up and add new cars and get rid of cars all the time. It's like, look, I learned so much about trains watching this one hearing, guys. Jacob is now a Thomas the Tank Engine aficionado. But but uh, anyway, anyway, from trains to something else, Tabitha, what were you paying attention to last week? Two things that I'd like to flag are a couple of disabilities rights bills that I found pretty interesting. One is SB 315, and that's from Senator Melanie Scheibel. Basically, what that would do, it establish this Bill of Rights for people receiving Medicaid-covered waiver services. And that Bill of Rights would specifically be for people with disabilities and people who are aged 65 years or older. From what supporters were saying, it would go a long way to guaranteeing a person is kind of treated with dignity and respect and ensure that they have this right to bodily autonomy within this setting. So that's able to make decisions surrounding personal property and finances, where they live, all of those things, because sometimes without that guarantee, you can have people kind of run over people with disabilities, right? The other bill that I kind of have been watching is Assembly Bill 259, and that one would basically make it so people with disabilities could not be paid sub-minimum wages. So right now you have like a set minimum wage for the state, but people can make less than minimum wage if they have a disability. And you'll see companies and organizations sort of taking advantage of that and say, you know, we're, we're, we hire people with disabilities, but on the flip side, we don't pay them enough to live. All right. Well, I'm sure that we will keep abreast of those bills as the deadline approaches at the end of this week. The deadlines are going to come in and they're, they're going to come and they're going to keep on coming, as Smash Mouth said. <laughs> they're going to keep on coming. Those deadlines, Joey. <laughs> Well, Sean, Tabitha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Jacob, stick around for that outro and have fun. You guys are reporting on this deadline week. I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about next week. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum, Howard Stutz, Tabitha Mueller, and Sean Galanka for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and my lovely co-host, Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Trans, 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 trans. Here we go. Yes, Joey, I am plugged in on the trains and I am now a train guy.